from the nation's leading supply chain university program, we welcome you to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Supply Chain Research. Here are your hosts, Steve Tracy and Irv Grossman. Joining us today is uh, Galen Smith. Galen is a the digital supply chain transformation leader, leader at IBM. Good morning, Galen. Good morning. How are you guys? Excellent. It's beginning of summer. I'd give a little bit of just a, a review, a little bit of background of, uh, of Galen. Uh, she's an accelerator and IBM's AI-enabled supply chain where she utilizes design thinking and cutting-edge technology to generate change. Throughout her career, Galen has led large-scale transformation initiatives across all areas of supply chain. She is uh, she creates teams uh, that win and build innovation innovative solutions. Um, she's an IBM certified consultant and supply chain management professional who holds patents in the supply chain processes. She's a frequent speaker in supply chain summits on AI, blockchain, design thinking, and has published several articles on innovation and supply chain agility. She earned her MBA from Duke and her bachelor's in industrial engineering from Georgia Tech. So. Uh, Got that? Got got your introduction out of the way there, Galen. So uh, I guess we we talked about it a little bit over a year ago. We've had not not much has changed in the world since then, right? So with all <laughs> with all the changes and and uh, you know just the all the news around supply chain, right, becoming front and center. Um, what is any any exciting things uh, change in IBM and in in the area of uh, of innovation and, and AI and, and all the area, all the new uh, the new things that are happening in supply chain. What can you think of? It's top of mind. That's very a loaded question. Uh, there's there's lots of things that are new and different uh, in our ever evolving uh, world of environments and business around us, as well as how we are reacting to it. You know, we we talked a lot about design thinking last time. And, um, you know, while the, the basic premise of, of design thinking and agile will, will always fundamentally be there, you know, how it's applied and how it's utilized continues to evolve to address the business scenarios. And so, you know, IBM is, is using the same approach, but in a very tailored, rapid kind of format with garages, with clients and, you know, being able to, to listen to what they need and, and design around that uh, very quickly in, in the span of four hours uh, to demonstrate, you know, what the what we can do uh, to help our clients. And, and so, you know, just having design thinking be such an integral part of the thinking of all people, you know, it, it's not just one group that goes and doing it. It's really each individual, you know, feeling and knowing how to ask the right questions and how to address what they're doing to create a user experience that that delivers results. So I think, you know, that's that's one thing that will always be a fundamental part of what we do. And then just business-wise, you know, you you're you are continuing to look at the front edge of technology. I mean, it's where one of the reasons we're proud to be so involved with Penn State and and learn from them. We've um, built on a new tailored learning experience that really has been so key in creating innovation in our people. It's one thing to talk about it, 
right? It's one thing to create that culture, but by having our people, our individuals across the supply chain, we, we pull in people from every organization and every tenure, new people, experienced people, and, and send them through these, these classes and, and this program. And they come out of it with just this, this passion to grow and learn and, and to create and to solve problems. And it's, it's been one of a really transformational change that that has happened amongst our people. And we're very appreciative to the support from, from the Penn State program to do that. You know, it's funny you talk about that, Galen. I saw a new book just came out and I can't remember the author. I'll have to find it. But she wrote about the power of cohort-based learning. And uh, it's it brand new. And I, I find it fascinating because it's our program, our Supply Chain Academy that you're talking about that, that IBM uses. We, we rolled that out in 2013. So I just, I just thought it was interesting that this this new book. I mean, I'm sure it's a great book, and and I have to read it. But about the power of cohort based learning. So I'm guessing that they're probably using our program as one of the exemplars because I saw one of my colleagues was quoted. It was uh, quoted in the cover of the cover of the book, but uh, it's kind of interesting. well, you know, building on that, Steve. It's um in a, you know when when the individuals are excited about feeling they can contribute right? That it's not always somebody else and they just benefit. It makes a world of difference in what your business can do. And so, you know, one of the things that I think is brand new for the industry as, as well as with us is th this feeling that, you know, you don't have to have a degreed data scientist to do data science work. You don't have to have a degreed full-time developer to do development and automation. And so we've started these citizen programs that um, are training I'd say regular people, but 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 enhancing their data scientist skills, not to be a 100% data scientist, but to use data scientist skills in their job and to make their job better. Same thing with development automation. As we as we roll further into hyper automation and to to where you're you're trying to do much more work, you're not going to survive if you have to depend on this. IT group over here to do everything for you, right? To be able to have the people and, and the college hires are coming out with all these skills, right? They're coming out ready to do data scientists and ready to do programming. And some of our more experienced people are like me programming. Are you kidding? I, I don't have a degree in that, but the, but you know, your, your people are ready to take on these challenges and to give them that opportunity to sink their teeth in and these, these new technologies and these new skills and do them in their job and not have to wait on other people, right? It just revolutionizes the amount of, um, of, of work that the people can accomplish and the amount of transformation that the group can do. So these are some of the new things that, um, that we've, we've seen or are getting into. Yeah, I, I use the term citizen scientist in a number of presentations that I do, and I think I might have gotten that from an IBM or if I'm not mistaken, I think it might have been one of your colleagues that mentioned it in a in a previous presentation that I saw. There's there's two definitions. There's two definitions I wanted to, to at least get a little deeper on for those that are, you know, for those like me that may be a little bit more, more novice around this. The term cohort based learning. Can you provide a little bit of either provide a little bit of definition around that? So if you think about, you know, the way that we have historically educated people physically in a classroom, right? Now, of course, it's, it's a hybrid or, in many cases, a virtual learning environment. But uh, when you're in the physical classroom, the, the teacher, her or his job is to get sort of everyone moving at a pace and to 
not just learn from the from the faculty member or the teacher, but to learn from each other. But you know, applying their own experiences and bringing their own insights. I mean, I use the term in the classroom when I on my first day of class, when I talked to my students, I said, "Look, let me explain something to you. There's 45 of you in the classroom and one of me. There's no way that I'm smarter than all of you, right? Like that's just a math equation." So, and and one of the grading terms that I use is to is for my students to rate one another to pick the, the, the students who contributed most of their learning in their classroom. And I give credit for that at the end of the semester. So if you think about learning as a group, right? And you know, I'll use IBM here as an example. So they have a specific set of outcomes that they'd like to achieve around innovation and design thinking and other advocacy things within the organization. I won't go too much into detail. They tee that up as sort of like, this is the end state that we want to get from. And then people move at a, at a pace, right? So as a group through the learning path, uh, sharing ideas with one another, discussion posts, discussion posts, responding to the content that they're being delivered. So we provide the theory, but then they will look at that and say, well, how does this apply to IBM? And those discussions are much more richer than the discussions they would have with, say, me as a faculty member. So if you think of the power of the cohort, right, and Galen gave a very clear example here. They're taking people that may be new to the organization as well as as experienced people and putting them together. And there's a knowledge transfer that goes on there. She talked about the younger uh, folks coming in with new skills that maybe some of the more senior folks don't have. And then the senior folks have experience in the business that the younger folks don't have. So you put that all together and you get this mixture of, well, here's what the faculty member said, and how does that apply to our business? And how does that apply to the historical part of the business? And so I went into too much detail there, but the the power of cohort learning is really taking a group of individuals from a starting point to an end point together and having them learn from one another in addition to learning from the content that they're being. If I could add to that, um, there were a couple elements to throw in there. I would, in my mind, the word self-led was coming up, right? I mean, and it's really giving it to them and saying, go with this, right? And there's enough structure around to keep them from way tangenting off track, right? I mean, they can go, but then it's like time boxed. So that they go and then they stop and they move on, right? So it's enough, right? They get a feel. We have open discussions in the middle of the class during the week. And we just we just say, you know, here's a couple of questions you can think about, but y'all go for it. And, and, and we have a core team that monitors where there is facilitators. We're very quiet. And we observe and report back, you know, did the questions spark the right conversation? Should we say different questions? But it's been so intriguing to just listen because every group will do something different. We'll get back together and share you know, how it went. But um, but they're but they're very different. And at the end, we say, okay, you know, now now apply what you what you learned. And we we have them create an idea that they want to present to our, the executives on how they can improve the supply chain. And they're responsible for it, right? They have to go through and think of well, what are all the, they're talking about? What are all the problems that came up during the class? What are their own personal experiences? And then they they talk amongst them and figure out how they narrow it down to the one they want to solve, and then they they flesh it out well, the way you normally would, you know, a project idea. And it's and it's a lot of growth for them. A lot of them haven't ever done an executive presentation or done, haven't ever figured out how to to 
frame the idea to sell it. But um, but they grow and they learn, and it's just really amazing to to watch how the structure helps them evolve and how they build from learning from each other. So you talked about the term citizen scientist. How do you enable a citizen scientist? Well, I can I can talk on our side. You you look at the fundamentals of what that skill developer, automator, scientist, data scientist, right? Which you know you we used to you can call them in the bath data developer data you know programmer whatever it's more figured focused on how you gather the data and how you analyze the data but you you take the the fundamental skills and you put it in a program that takes people who are interested right that want to take the, the class the program 30 40 individuals and and train them on the fundamentals right um how how to how to gather the data, how to search for it in the databases, right? How, how to pull it out, how to analyze it, how to transform it, what are the tools you might use, Python, whatever. And then, then you make them apply what they learn, right? The program is enough, you know, several months long of, it, they've still got their full-time job, right? They've always got their full-time job, but this is how to enhance your skills. And it's more than just taking, like, I could go on and take a class that's data scientist and I listen and read, but it's, it's, it's much more than that. It's much more to, to give them actual experience in that setting so that they can apply it afterwards and they have to do a project to graduate. Um, they have to actually deliver something in their area of the business so they can team up with another person to do their area but they actually apply it so that they, when you let them loose and they graduate they're capable now of sitting back and going oh i need that data well let me go find it and they're more independent right they're still the governance around them just running off and doing whatever but they're capable now of of doing things without having to wait for other people steve anything to add well i think the other part of that galen is in doing this, the one skill you also develop is the ability to use data in your day-to-day -day job. You know, whether it's through visualization or analytics or whatever, you know, before, before these tools were really available, you know, we had to go to a, I'll call it a professional who was skilled in that to develop and design the analytics and then provide them to us. And possibly also with some interpretation. So the interpretation piece of understanding what is the data telling me and how can I make decisions based on that is another real skill that comes with it. So, so besides the learning how to do it and why to do it and appropriate ways to do it, it's how does it make you do your job better? So how does data enable you as a better performer? And that I think is really the, that's really the power and value to a corporation. The, I mean, data, is is the new frontier, right? I mean, we, we've been talking for years about massive data being available and it just it continues to grow. I mean, it's even massiver than it was, you know, five years ago. And people who can wrangle that, people who can get their hands on it and 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 find it is always the first challenge. Pull it out into somewhere where you can manipulate it and transform it and then make sense of it, right? And make sense of it to where you get to insights faster. And that's the key. It's not just having more columns on your spreadsheet, right? It, it, it's being able to transform it and, and focus on and, and interpret and, and categorize and crunch to get it to where it spits out an insight that you were looking for very quickly instead of taking days or a professional to go off and try and do it. Because that, that is what's going to drive supply chains 
into the future is being able to know more and make better decisions faster. And it's all dependent on your ability to get the data and analyze it with AI and automation to bring you those insights so that people are always there to make those tough decisions. See, now we got a new term, new term, Galen, data wrangler. We got a new, we got a new term that came out of today's podcast. I'm picturing, I'm picturing like a, I'm picturing somebody in a cowboy hat, you know, lasso. That's exactly it. That's the image. <laughs> if you think about like prior where you prior experience, where you would make a request, you'd send it to the IT department, you get it, you get in a queue, and what you would get back, let's say months later, maybe a year or two later, is not even close to what you really want, and then you want to iterate on it, and and then all of a sudden you're back in the queue again. So obviously, all this data, I'll call it citizen. What do you call it? Citizen data wrangler, citizen scientist, allows us to speed up that that iteration and allows us to become insight prior, you know, driving insight and agility. Interesting. The bottleneck has become the ability to get your hands on this data and the insights. And so, and, and you know, you can only expand your IT team so much, right? You, you that that's we've noticed that is that is not going to cut it right we can't just having this group off to the side that you're in queue for because people have so many great ideas of what they can do for it we're just losing opportunity when you have 30 ideas you can only do the top three at a time you're just losing the opportunity but to get this in the hands of the people and to get them to be able to manage their data and get these answers themselves is a tremendous opportunity and, and this is a good segue into today's topic, which is really supply chain agility. So, you know, Galen, you mentioned a couple of things earlier. Maybe you can expand on these. One is, first of all, creating the creating the culture, the agile culture at IBM, which clearly there is. You know, I've written a paper on the subject. And the fact that you've got all these skills that you're providing to individuals, how do you then take the creation of a culture the skills that you give to these individuals and then actually create an agile work environment? Like, how does that actually work? You know, it's, it's a transformation and it takes many different elements to come together. The, you know, culture doesn't happen overnight. Culture is something that number one, you have to, to, to educate your management team to understand what it is they're going for. They have to change what they say. They have to change their behavior, right? They have to know what it is we're going for. So, you know, going down an, an agile organizational change took several years, right? Starts from the top, spreads out, but people won't do it unless they see it. You know, it's another one of those things you say and they'll just wait a year and then you'll be doing some other fad. So they have to actually see it. So, you know, this takes time and it takes consistency by the management team to show and demonstrate. So they have to buy in. They have to understand it. They have to live it. They have to breathe it. And they've got to motivate it and inspire it in other people. So it's a journey that you go on and you learn by doing the whole agile culture uh, well, cultural change take time. Agile is all about, you know, when I started work, the big thing that you were appraised on and, you know, recognized for was completed staff work. And this term meant you don't go into any manager 
and without having the answer to every single question they could possibly ask. Well, you know, that makes for a great presentation, but it does take a long time. I mean, you're out there in analysis and questions for a long time before you can go in. And that 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 may have worked back then 40 years ago, but the, today's world doesn't allow that. And so people have to be able to know enough to take that first step, small step, and then learn from it. The whole risk taking and, and the safe environment that the managers have to create. You know, you know, before the management was groomed to be on a witch hunt, what went wrong? Who did it? What are we going to do about it? And it had to change. That all had to change. And you had to demonstrate over and over that that's changing so that people are willing to come in and say, we tried this. It did not deliver what we we're wanting for. Now we're on this path. And for the manager to say, okay, great. What'd you learn from that? Okay, super. Now what's the next step? I mean, and, and that's as hard as it was to get through that meeting where before, you know, your career could be teetering on it. So a cultural change is big and an agile one where they're willing to create the safe environment for people to learn and try new things is absolutely critical um, to get there. So when people feel like that culture is around them, that their management team is going to support them, regardless of what happens, then they are excited about learning new things and trying new things. This is how you create a growth mindset in each individual, not just the top of the group, not just your transformation team, right? Because you can get only so far with the limited number of people doing it. But when everybody's excited, like what we develop in these cohort teams, right? We just we just groomed 35 people to go out and start questioning, why are we doing that? Why can't we do this? Running to their manager going, we can do something different, bringing up ideas, right? And, and they feel like people will listen to them, that they feel like it's not just people going, yeah, 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 that'll never work, you know, try something else. So those kind of things are really fundamental, I think, for building uh, an agile organization or creating agility and resilience in an organization, because you can throw tools out there but if people don't adopt them, if they don't know how to use them, if they don't know how to incorporate them, you're still not going to get anywhere. You know, you can make process changes, but if it doesn't stick and you're still following the old metrics, you'll never get there. And all of these, these metrics changes, these, these mindset changes are important for people to know that they can excel. And then the world just opens up, right? I, it's, it's, it's really positive to me to see that mindfulness has become such a big thing in the industry, but also inside IBM, right? It's, it's very coaching, right? Coaching, they encouraging everyone and training people on coaching, all the managers, so that it's, it's really not mentoring, not telling, not just sharing your wisdom, right? But helping them to learn how to cultivate and grow themselves for them figuring it out. So all of these things are very different than what the, the, the world and the company was 10 years ago. And these are all very positive of helping individuals grow and develop. Obviously, there are a lot of people that you had to bring along the way. It just didn't happen overnight. I mean, somewhere at the top, somebody had to make some changes that allowed people to be creative, uh, take risks versus where they haven't. So what what was the catalyst that made that change? Well, it was, if I remember being 2015, because I was part on the edge of it, but Agile, you know, started 25, 30 years ago, right, in software development. And, and it stayed there for a long time. And now software development, which is where I learned of it, you know, was, was using it. But our, our CEO, Jenny Rometty, came along and said, Agile 
is important for every individual in this corporation. And she flipped it. She brought in her senior executives in January of 2016 and said, we're going to be an agile organization, trained them for three days and said, go out now and, and gathered up coaches. We created a coach, agile coaching organization that was going to help roll it out training in it. And it, it, you know, there were, um, I myself taught like 17 classes on agile leadership, right? Just continuing to bring them in and, and pound it and give examples. Cause I'd lived agile. I've implemented it. So I'm not just, saying, here's what you should do. I gave them rich examples of, of how it's better and how it works and the problems you're going to face and how to deal with those. Because this was a major cultural change. So it, it started at the top and it was relentless, ongoing. It was not the fat of the year. It was still there the next year and still there the next year and all of the metrics and the performance plans um, so that we could see it evolve and everybody would latch onto it and design thinking came along soon after that to help with, you know, focusing on the customer, focus on the user experience. And they, they, they are, they're integrated. They're very supportive of each other, but it takes a, a consistent message and, and behavioral change and demonstration from the top, right? Always in, I mean, we had years of people coming in and showing, showcasing how they were agile. Right. The executives doing it in their all hand speeches, a meeting every month where we just had like four groups coming in and explaining how they were agile, how they were different, how the ad they were using the agile practices just to help people continue to see an example of, of support. And we're doing it right. It, it, not that each of these problems were world changing for the business. The point was you're being agile. That's the point of it. So it was a long road. But but again, they stayed with it. And it became in, integral in how we do our jobs, integral in how the people were were, were um, looked at and asked and questioned and, you know, in meetings were run. So, Galen, as you and I both know, one of the underpinnings of Agile is risk-taking. And one of the enablers to risk-taking is a safe environment where, I don't, I hate the term where where things are allowed to fail. It's not that they failed. They just didn't work the way you intended, right? They, you, you might've got a different result or you might not have got an ideal result, but you got, you know. So how does IBM uh, as an organization create or how has it created that safe work environment where people can take educated risk and be able to learn from things that don't work exactly as planned? How do you create that part of the culture in the organization? I think there were there were two prongs to it. One was management training, and and two was a, a lot of agile coaches filtered out amongst the organization. Right in those years, I spent a lot of time going and talking to teams and letting them complain to me. Right, it'll never work. What about this? What about that? Nah, nah, nah. Right, and the whole regurgitation of this happened to me in the past. Right, and so you have to you have to let them vent to get over it, and then you have to guide them and coach them on the new ways to get them to try it, right? Because if people do try it, they're going to discover they love it, right? There's, there's not anybody who's been out there trying it and, and, and not liked it. So I think I, there's a lot of one-on-one -on -one or small team coaching that went on, positive with the, with the management team. So, you know, when I started doing Agile, you, you don't go in with your projects and say, I will deliver this in, you know, 17 months. And then march to that plan. You say, generally speaking, here's our objective. 
you know, and, and, and then you come in and you say, here, I course corrected. That was our term that we use for pivoting. And, and here's why. And, you know, you, you have to work through the reactions. Not every manager was perfect on day one, right? Some of them were, were more accommodating and some of them were like, what happened and why? And, and, and some of it, you just have to work through, you know, you have to give them, they've got to vent, they've got to go through it. So it's, it's, it's the long haul. It's not, it's not, it doesn't happen in three days or three months, but it has to be, there has to be this support environment behind it where people could come say, you know, Joe over there as a manager really could use some agile coaching and you work with them on the side, you know, you go and help people work through things. But I think the management team was there and they were always supportive, right? I mean, when, when I started going into meetings and presenting what didn't happen and what we were going to do differently, the reaction was key, right? And, and some of them were better than others, but I mean, over time, it's, it's all there's, there's not been for quite a while now, years, the, the negative reaction. And Steve, like you're saying, we stopped calling it failure. Part of the agile training was to not use that word, right? It was just something that tried that didn't go as planned. And so you now you try something else and the, it, it, because it was supported by agile, right. And you try small things. The problem wasn't nearly as big as if you had worked on it for six months trying the wrong thing, and then that's a much bigger consequence, right? But the the value of learning from it and resetting and trying again is much greater than going down a path for six months and then missing your mark, which which you know, having run projects for all my career, many of them, you know, if they're nine months long, even six months or longer, by the time you get there, you know, your business changed underneath you and you're about 50% hitting the mark. And you do that enough times and you're thinking, you know, this is, isn't the way I think this is supposed to work. So when Agile comes along and says, hey, shorten it up, you're like, absolutely, that was the thing I'm missing, right? So it, it makes a lot more sense and it just takes a lot of consistency and, and strong messaging from the management team. But it was, uh, it was, Definitely something that the management supported and was very vehement about and supportive over the long haul. I enjoyed your earlier comment when you talked about witch hunt management and, you know, what went wrong and blame the innocent, right? And I'm probably, as a former executive, I'm probably as guilty as anyone of having done that earlier in my career. I don't, I don't know, we'll have to ask Kinsey later, but I don't think I do that anymore. But I mean, that was kind of the way we were, we were trained and raised, right? You wanted everything to be quote unquote, perfect. And if it wasn't perfect, you wanted to try to get it there. And that just doesn't work in today's day and age anymore. We, we work a lot with clients that have, um, that are always more interested in the story. They want, they want to tell the story. So how often have you been in a situation where the story had an expectation, but it didn't quite turn out as what it expect, what you expected? Well, I would say many times, it's just that they weren't big problems. There's a level of expectation setting that has to happen along the way. Yes. As far as communicating those that, that just everybody, when we get to the end, I think what's, there's an old saying that, it, that, it, that a, meeting, a final meeting is a celebration what's already been accomplished. The idea of communicating it such that, that everybody's moving along the same direction. So there's a tremendous amount of communication and course correction that has to occur up and down the line. So the story will change, right? Yes. And, and it's usually a good thing when it changes because, because I mean, when, I, maybe the thing that I haven't thrown in here about why this is important is because 
in the olden days, we would go to our, our users and say, what is it you want? And force them to know the future of all these things and write it down and say, these are my requirements. And then we'd say, thanks, talk to you in seven months and would run off and develop that. And, and, and if they said, I have another idea, I'm sorry, I've locked my scope. You know, I have to deliver it in seven months, so I can't take any new news, right? But it's changed. No, sorry, I've locked my scope. And so then you bring it back and they're testing it. And, you know, that wasn't really what I meant or I didn't. That's not really what, that's not working anymore. And then in test, you're just like, sorry, you know, you wrote that down and I'm delivering it. So you better sign off. The whole thing was just a mess, right? And so, you know, now it's important that the users are an integral part of the development team. So they are the ones driving the change. They're the ones going, yeah, I didn't mean that. I know I said it, but that's not really I, so, and we're like, okay, what is it you really mean? And you change, but what does that do for you? Well, that's much better to give them something that when they get it, they go, yay, I can, I can do this. I mean, I know in design thinking, they say that the statement of what you're going to deliver is who, what, and wow, because when you tell them, here's what I'm going to give you, they should go and they do go, Wow, if it's really good. They've never gotten anything that close to what they wanted before. You know, it's not a tool. It's not like I'm going to give you this function. It's I'm going to change the way you do your job. I'm going to change what you think about when you come in the morning. I mean, it's not just, you know, they're always asking for spreadsheets and data. And we're like, what do you do with that once you get it? Well, I have to go this. Okay, then what do you do with it? Well, I got to do that. Well, then what do you do with it? And when they finally get down, well, then I can make a decision. Well, how about I just give you that? And they go, wow. And you're like, yeah, this is, this is what design thinking trains you to do. And so, so you have to have them an integral part along the way because they will, they, it's impossible for them to know the future or what you, the possibilities are with the technology. They don't know the technology. So how can they possibly tell you what they want technology to do if they don't know it yet, right? This is what the transformation team has. And so, so it's a constantly working together, but you give them small bits and they get that and they're like, oh, well, now I want this. Okay, let's go after and do that, right? So when you're constantly delivering them what is their top priority, they're going to be happy. The business is going to excel. You know, the customers are going to be happy. And, and that's what makes it win, right? It's not just that you're always changing. It's you change because you were giving something better to your customer, in customer, your person in the department next to you, whatever. That's what wins people over. I remember the first time I ever tried to do it. And of course, the first month I went to executives, they said, well, what are your deliverables all year by date and cost? And, you know, and you're like, okay, generally speaking, this is what I'm going to do, you know, la, la, la. And then, and then on in month two, the, the business team came in and said, oh my gosh, worst problem ever. This is what I need. Drop everything else. Okay. Well, let me finish deploying that. We'll work on this. Two months later, I deployed it, solved a major problem. And that was what started to win the executives over. You did that in two months? Yes. I listened for a month, wrote the requirements, coded for a month, and we got out the door. And when I did that every month, delivering something new function because we were agile, after six months, they weren't they weren't asking those big questions. What are you committed to? It was like, well, what are you going to do next? What about after that? And so you're just queuing up. And, it, and the, when they can see that we're changing and reacting to the business, that's what won them over. And I think I think that's the the key element because 
it's not just winning over the executives, but the people, the people that adopt and have to use it must be a believer. They must be excited about it. And when they get intricately involved and can, and, and you respond to their changes without smacking them upside the head or anything, then they, then they love it, right? They're, they're, they're a full believer and they start using it. And then it starts spreading because, you know, scale starts growing after that. You start small and growing it out. But then they're convincing their peers, you're going to love this. You know, you're going to like that. What do you need different? Okay. We'll tell them that. And that's, that's, I think, what is the fundamental element of why it works. So, you know, clearly you're passionate about this and clearly IBM is a success story and you've talked eloquently about the wins. Talk about some of the challenges and bottlenecks that the organization or any organization is going to run into. And how do you, how do you identify those? How do you combat those? You know, what, what are, the, what are the things that people can expect as they move to an agile culture that they're going to run into that they should just anticipate and have to prepare for? It takes, it takes a while. It's not a short journey, right? And it takes the consistency for management. You will, you will have people that just are slow to turn, and that can be frustrating and make people want to give up. But, you know, you just need to look to other teams that are doing it, right? And having a support structure that like agile coaches that can come join the teams and kind of bolster them and guide them. I mean, it's, it's a lot to expect that people are going to follow every one of the practices correctly. Right. And normally when they say it's not working and I go into side of it, it's because they misunderstood or shortcutted or just didn't get the good foundation because a lot of people will follow the steps on the page, but have missed why they're following the steps on the page. Like design thinking makes you write everything before you share, right? And so people will do that, but then they'll still share the old way, right? They'll still have two people talking and not listening to anybody else. And so, you know, you have to like, do you know why you're writing it down? Because diversity is key to innovation. And if you don't give everybody a chance to talk, and if, if two people are loud talking, the quiet people will just sit and they go, yeah, sounds good to me. And that's the worst thing that can happen. What you need is for everyone to put their thoughts out there on a sticky, and then you allow the group to talk about all of them, because that's the only way you get the diversity and the innovation out there. So, but a lot of people miss that, right? A lot of people miss that that was why you were doing it. They just did it and then reverted back to old, old, old things. A lot, a lot of times the daily stand-up meetings, the whole point was, is what have you done? What are you doing? Do you have problems? Quick and easy, are you making it? A lot of people change the names of their meeting to stand up, ran them the exact same way. Hour long, multiple discussions, problem solvings. And I was like, no, stand up is really for the team to see is anyone lagging behind that needs help? They're not always know, gonna know how to ask for help, but you can say, oh, you know, Bob, I know how to do that. I'll, I'll, let me do it to you after the meeting. And that's the way you help Bob stay on track. Not going, Bob, you didn't do that? What's got Bob? What's your problem? But that's not going to help Bob do any better. So, you know, but a lot of people just didn't get the nuances along, you know, what was written on the paper about how to do things. So I think that's that's some of the other problems, you know, cultural change, how to reach individuals, you know, giving people time to change, particularly, you know, some people are open to change and some people are not. And you, you just got to let people be themselves. You've got to let them proceed at their own pace. I know one of the instructors in my agile class, I, I raised my hand and I said, but what if they don't get it? And they're like, you know, your job is to present it 
their job is to absorb it and people absorb at different phases. You have, you can only do so much and you have to let people go at the pace that they're open to. So that's why the continual messaging is important to be out there. And then I, I think, you know, being able to make sure that a lot of people don't really use the users in the process. So I talked a little bit ago about how important it is to have the users in the middle of it. They still will go talk to the users for an hour and then come back and say, okay, I know how they feel. I talked to them for an hour. So this is all the things, this is their pain points, this is what we're going to do. And they're like, did, did they fill out the pain points with you? Well, no, because I talked to them. Well, let's do it with them. Let's have them involved in, you know, the the different sessions and, and let them have a chance to talk. Even though you did listen, which is wonderful. Well, let's just keep them engaged all the way through the process. So little things like that, that, that people will, will think it didn't work. And, you know, you have to kind of get under the covers to figure out, you know, what, what it was about the interpretation that may not have been um, in, in line with the intent. So you, if you're on the other side of this, listening to this podcast, you're an executive or a middle manager, and you're trying to figure out how do I start this journey? Where do you, where do you start? You know, there, there are various paths and it all depends on, well, the one thing you learn early on is every team will do something different because every team is made out of different people with different interests and different abilities. So as soon as you grasp that, then you realize there's not one course that's going to get everybody anywhere because you have to be flexible and let them try what they want to try. So in, in any company, you know, fundamentally the culture has to be there. So where are they in their culture, right? How much is change is needed? If they aren't agile and, and being able to re react quickly and be able to, to, to have this safe environment for risk taking, those are steps, right? So I think fundamentally the culture is the biggest thing that has to be there for your team to flourish. But as you're building the culture, you can still have pockets where you go out and start trying new things, right? You can have pockets of people that are trained. So as they learn, it starts to scale out, right? It starts to grow. I know Agile had to do a lot of, um, they would call it grassroots agile, where people just got together. The bottom level of the organization has said, you know what, well, we're going to do this differently. And they did. And it, it grew from there. And then once you have one team that's successful, they can start showing and, and do it to other teams. So that's typically how you get into new processes, new culture, or new technologies, right? I mean, you're not going to take one technology and try and do it on 17 lines all at the same time, right? You know, you take people who are going to learn it. They try it in one place. You decide if it's going to fit your organization or not, because you can try technology and realize this isn't just going to bring a lot of value. It'll bring small value, but it's not going to make my priority list. So that was great. It's something you learned. You can tell that to other people. You learned what counts and what doesn't count. And, and you can help clients. You know, you said, this is where this matters. Oh, that's really important to you. Well, great. This is going to be a big difference to you, even though I didn't implement it, um, you know, full scale. But, you know, you can learn from that. So so you 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 try and build it. Like I said, we have enough of the of AI out there with people using it, with automation out there with people using it, that the time was right to go to citizen data scientists and automators, right? It wasn't like no one's ever heard of it or saying, hey, let's go train 35 people. That probably wouldn't have worked. But enough people knew what they were going to get out of it to say, oh yeah, yeah, I really, I really want to do that. Um, so start small and grow from there and build on your successes. Pick where your team is knowledgeable and talented and interested that that's most likely going to add value 
and then just just branch out from there. As long as you have a strategy overall of where you want to get to, the paths to get there can be varied and it will take varying amounts of time. But but as long as you have an end result and, and you can pivot as needed to, to stay with your end result, then I think it's, then I think you're on your journey, but every journey will be different. The other thing I think I'll say is culture. And then the other thing that's, that we've talked about, but you can't get anywhere without is your data, right? Every project that I've started has said, well, what data do you need? And what data do you have? And when they want to go off and have the first thing to deliver something that has no data, I'm like, okay, we'll go work to get that data. But the fastest delivery is on the data you already have. Let's figure out how to make that valuable. And then we will expand as we get the data. So as long as there are always new opportunities to get data, which I doubt that will ever stop, you know, you always have to have that data expansion. And so therefore a data platform that, that the data comes together and can be stored and held. I mean, supply chain is, a, is a, it changes, real-time changes. So you have to have that real-time data flowing through and be able to accept it long past the days when we were batch overnight runs. And every morning you start with the data and that's all you have all day long. We're well past that. And so you have to be able to have real-time data. And you know we've used blockchain to bring in data from the external networks that we have with suppliers and logistics providers using IoT sensors to bring it in across manufacturing or in our logistics. That's just broadening our data. That's just giving us much more to get alerts. What do you mean that? parts not moving, right? Alert. Now I got to get it. Not, it didn't show up at the back door. You know, I mean, all those things help you manage your business better and, and it gives you that more real time feel, but you don't want to be the one tracking every sensor. You want your system, you want your AI tracking and have the appropriate alerts set up, sent to the right people uh, that need it, not just everybody. You don't want to blast alerts. People ignore those right away, but you know, the, you use the, you have to build your data platform as a foundation to, to advance. Right. And again, that's, that takes a long time. You use what you have, but keep expanding it, but making that a primary feature of your transformation strategy is important. So Galen, a lot has changed in the world in the last, I'll say 30 months, uh, going into the disruptions that we've all experienced. IBM was already kind of an agile organization in terms of the way that it behaved. But as you think about lessons learned in the last 30 months, and obviously I don't want you to betray any confidences here about anything proprietary that IBM might not want to want to publicize, but how do you see the future? Like, what do you see as the next 24 to 36 months of changes from lessons learned over the supply chain disruptions that we have experienced and are still experiencing? How do you, how do you see the future uh, coming out? Well, there was a, there's a lot of ahas that surfaced as I'm, as I'm sure it was with many companies, right? I mean, the, the path that we were on, we were all excited about. And then the tremendous amount of disruptions made us realize not going to cut it in today's world. More things must be done. More advances faster, right? And that drives prioritization, right? So, you know, you, you still, you can't just add more and keep doing everything. So prioritization takes place in there, but you know, the, the quickness of the decision making is probably the 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 thing that is out there in front of us and so you know working on what what is being termed an intelligent workflow where 
where you you ramp up your processes to where they're very fluid and not batch driven, right? And this is hard to do. This is something that you know you've really got to work on, but you've got to have the the process be reactive to the environment, not not the people reactive and trying to work inside the stagnant process, right? And that that is where we are going for our first ventures and is um, continuous intelligent planning where we're trying to to get more data from the sales team to bring in so that the demand planning can not once a month look at the changes but every day be able to assess the changes and be able to pass that in some way to suppliers and then some way get information back that allows us to change how we're bringing parts in and how we're how we're manufacturing and not that we don't do that today but it's not completely automated, systemized, and support structure. There could be manual steps in there that we're we're still working through, but we want to make that be much more fluid in a system where we automate some of the the tasks that people do, and we in and the data is brought together in a much more integrated fashion, so that that the co- collaboration is augmented by the technology. Not everybody's at their desk doing their thing. And then you have to have a meeting and everybody starts sharing everything, right? But that now more of this is in the tool, more of this is being done and presenting you with, I've already thought about the things that you normally think about. And here are our recommendations and why we're recommending it so that the people can now get together and quickly assess. I mean, you know, see, we've talked about how the role of people has evolved over time and is going to evolve even more. You know, back in the back when I hired on, silos and people had their little sliver of information. And and of course that busted when we went to global. And and so you're, you know, you may have the same basic job, but you have now have to look at the whole world and how sites are different and globally you're different with suppliers, et cetera. And so their their scope was broader and that's happening even more so. The, the demand for people to know more about the cross-functionalness and the end-to-end process, right? The more they branch outside of their job definition, the better they are going to be making decisions. And so this, this ability to help the people grow and change from being an operator of the process to being an orchestrator of the process where the process runs and you orchestrate it, not the pro you're trying to manage the process and kicking off all the tasks and, and doing it. It's much relieving that manualness and, and having to touch everything. And this is going to be a, a stretch. It's going to be a challenge, but um, we're well on our way. We've been into it for over a year now, and we've had some implementations and some huge success in the data, the, the digitization. I never knew how many gaps you can have in a digital network until you start trying to automate everything and you realize, wow, that's still manual, you know? And, and it's not like you don't have the information. It's just that you were getting it emails and updates and you're like, how can I digitize that so that it's automatically feeding into AI? Because the, the minute you stop the feed into AI, you lose you lose that augmentation of intelligence and you're you're 100% back on the people doing it. So growth of the people and their roles, you know, getting them at that higher level, but they can't do it without the platform underneath them, providing them the data that helps them collaborate. Those are the future in front of us. The The need to get closer to your supplier network, right? I mean, it, it's no longer you are the you're the next one out and then you can let them do it, right? It's the need to, to have an awareness of the overall because of the resiliency. We've really discovered a lot of gaps, holes, uh, places that we could improve in our resiliency, but it requires knowledge 
of what's going on out there in all those multi-tier levels. And that's what we're going after because it just makes every single layer more resilient. It's not just the end result that's more resilient. Every single layer will become more resilient and everyone will gain value out of being able to, to use that data in an intelligent fashion to be able to know in advance how to, to, to change your sourcing or to know feel the change with the, the, the shortages or the commodities or whatever as it starts to shift. Capture that and respond as quickly as possible. Well, I think you and I know firsthand from the current project we're working on that the data that you want, the data that you need isn't always readily available and it takes some time. You did touch on, when I appreciate, you know, the five dimensions of an agile supply chain and I just want to reinforce them in our conversation for the audience. You know, one is alertness and awareness. The other one is accessibility of data. The third one is decisiveness. The fourth one is swiftness in decision-making. And the, I mean, the fourth one and the fifth one is flexibility and adaptability. So you really quite adequately talked about the way in which the organization sort of puts that in, into context. Any final thoughts for the audience in terms of what it takes to be an agile supply chain or, you know, maybe some pitfalls that they want to be wary of or resources that they want to make sure that they have handy, you know, any any kind of top level recommendations for a senior leader out there who's on an agile supply chain journey, but you can maybe help them avoid some of the challenges they might run into? Well, the first thing that popped into my mind as you you started your question is to, to, to not underestimate the value of the individual person, right? Is how can you how can you cultivate in each person a growth mindset? How can you cultivate a spirit? Of, of wanting to improve and learn and innovate and the confidence that they need to face anything thrown at them. The fact that they believe they can solve it, no matter how hard it is or that they never address it, they believe it, they'd feel their team is behind them in the management because when each person feels that way, you as an organization will just blossom. There will be no holding them back. They will be finding and improving without you if you don't stay on top of it, right? That I, I, it just, you know, I've seen that in this, the most recent years and it's just been amazing to me what people can accomplish individually, right? Working as a team, but individually going at it. So, so that, that's probably the, the one thing that I'm not sure people focus on enough, right? Because it's a lot of work to get to each individual, but that's really where I think the, the payback becomes. And, and just how we talked about the self-led cohorts, you know, it doesn't all have to come from the management team or a transformation leader, right? These people can make it happen. These people can change your business. So that's probably the, the first one. And I'll, I'll just go back to culture, right? The management team needs to build that culture. That's what's on their shoulders. And to make sure that it is inspiring and supportive to their people so their people can blossom. I think Harold Levitt got it right in 1963, people, process, and technology in that order. That's exactly how we approach things too. The technology is great, but it won't work by itself. If you don't have the people the run it and know it. And then on the processes that, that it's going to improve, you know, who wants to automate a bad process, right? You need to improve the processes and, and go from there. Well, Galen, it was great to talk to you today. Really appreciate you joining us today. So again, Galen Smith from IBM, again, thanks for your time today. Thank you, Galen. You enjoyed it. Thanks to be able to talk to you guys. 
Thanks for listening to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Supply Chain Research at Penn State. For information about our sponsorship opportunities, research needs, and professional development offerings, please visit smeal.psu.edu forward slash CSCR.